Uh, so <clears throat> Titus 1, um, I'm going to begin by reading the passage uh, starting in verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So two weeks ago we began the series in Titus uh, with the first five verses of the book. And there we saw, in Paul's introduction to the letter, the theological significance of how he viewed himself, how he viewed God, and how he viewed Titus, who he is writing to. We ended at reading verse 5. I mean, considering that, and that's actually where we're going to pick up again this week. Here, Paul writes his instruction for Titus, of which the rest of the letter is kind of a filling out of that thesis, of that more general instruction. And the, the verse 5 says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The two instructions are first to straighten out what was left unfinished, and second, to appoint elders in every town. The church in Crete, an infamously immoral place, was in its infancy. And as any parent would know, children, particularly, particularly young children, are an unfinished work. And at times, there's some straightening out that needs to happen. And in this straightening out of the unfinished, Titus is namely to appoint elders in every town, which is where Paul first turns attention, his attention to as we kind of get into the, the meat, the body of this letter. Um, and then, so that's the first section, the first verses six through nine is him talking about appointing elders. And then secondly, he's going to start addressing false teachers, um, almost the, the opposite of these elders that he is to appoint. So that's where we're going to go this morning. First, in verses six through nine, um, Paul is writing to Titus about those who he, is, he should appoint to be elders of this church. And in directing Titus on the important job of appointing elders to the church, he wastes no time. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless. If there's one word he wants 
Titus to think about when he thinks of an elder qualified man in the church, it is the word blameless. Because he repeats it again in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. He repeats himself to emphasize. Other translations say that the elder must be above reproach. The sense here in blameless is that he has a good reputation. His life is honorable, orderly, and righteous. And this includes, firstly, blamelessness in the home. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Blamelessness in his marriage to his wife, the husband of one wife, meaning not polygamous, not with many wives for sure, but also, and probably more likely in view as well as maybe more pertinent to our culture today, not having been having. Um, been married multiple times due to a repeated pattern of marriage and divorce and marriage and divorce. Faithfulness, steadiness, and commitment rather than adultery, volatility, uneasiness, these make for a blameless, that does not make for a blameless marriage um, and consequently a blameless elder. An elder, Paul says, must also be blameless in raising his children. Our translation reads, a man whose children believe. This could mean that his children are believers, that they follow Jesus, they profess faith in Christ, maybe they've been baptized, they believe the gospel. But it also, the word believe could also be translated faithful in a more broad sense. It could mean that the children are obedient and faithful to their parents, um, that they aren't, as it says, wild and disobedient. While I believe that every parent should pray and make every effort to raise their children up to be men and women who believe in the gospel and love the Lord Jesus Christ, I do believe that the second sense of that is probably more in view here. In his first letter to Timothy, which is very similar, I think I mentioned this last time, in many ways very similar to the book of Titus, uh, Paul writes similar instructions to Timothy about appointing elders. When he addresses this qualification of blamelessness in raising children, um, he writes this, an elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And so you kind of see that sense of, um, of raising children who are obedient and not wild and unruly and that they're able to parent them in a gentle and yet um, God-honoring way. In that passage in 1 Timothy, Paul also clarifies why this qualification is important. He says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church. This is why for an elder, blamelessness in the home is so important. An elder is charged with caring for the bride of Christ. He must show that he can take care of his own bride, his wife. An elder is charged with looking after the children of God. He must show that he can raise his own children as well. So he talks about blamelessness, blamelessness in the home for an elder. Then, Paul more generally states why he and the Holy Spirit speaking through him insists on blamelessness in the potential elder for the church in Crete. He says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. <clears throat> Though a different word is used here, it's overseer instead of elder, Paul is clearly using the terms interchangeably. Uh, and the word overseer is where you get the word bishop um, and pastor. Right? These, so these elder and pastor titles are really synonymous here. 
Um, he's clearly using them interchangeably. An elder or overseer must be blameless because, it says, since he is entrusted with God's work. In your work, unless you're self-employed, I suppose, um, you likely have certain policies you have to follow as you interact with customers and client or clients. It might be a uniform you have to wear or dress code you have to follow, uh, certain things you can or cannot say, uh, how you maintain personal hygiene or, or keep up your appearance. Why is that? It's because as you perform your job, as you perform your employer's work, you must represent your company or your employer. And so the elder, as he does God's work, represents the God who has commissioned him to that work. The elder serves a blameless Savior, and so he must be blameless. An elder carries out the work of God, and this is immensely important work. So much so that Paul uses the word entrusted. He says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work. You don't entrust something that's of little value. If I'm on a, a walk sometimes with our boys, sometimes if Spurgeon's kind of distractor, he's kind of antsy, I'll give it, pick up a leaf or something and give it to him to play with. And I'm giving it to him. He can do whatever he wants with it. He can rip it up. He can crumble it. He can just hold it still. Um, I don't care if he destroys that leaf. I've given it to him. It's not of much value. It's just for his own doing to do what pleases him. Now, in less than a month, my brother is getting married. And so Spurgeon, that same three-year-old leaf destroyer, will be entrusted as the ring bearer to carry the valuable sentimental rings for the ceremony. The rings are precious. They are not for Spurgeon to play with and do whatever he wants to do. He is entrusted to carry out a very specific task with those very important items. So it is that the elder must be blameless because he is entrusted with the precious work of a blameless God, namely caring for the bride of Christ. And this in Ephesians 5 is how it says Christ cares for his bride. It says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. A blameless Christ is in the business of making his people, the church, blameless. Why then should we expect that one of the means through which he does this work, elders, should have any other standard? Now I have to pause here and address this question. Does this mean that an elder must be totally, completely perfect. I'll be very quick to tell you no. If that were the case, Titus would, or Paul would be sending Titus on an impossible task. Find perfect people who have done nothing wrong and they can lead the church. Even Paul himself wouldn't say that of himself. He says in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. And that's also the same Paul who cried out, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Would this Paul then turn around and require that those who are continuing the work of the church that he planted to be more perfect, to meet a standard that he can't even meet himself? If an elder had to be totally and completely perfect, I would finish my sermon right here. I would walk back to my seat. I'd resign from the board of elders on the way to my seat because I can tell you I am far from perfect. And on my way, I'd wait uh, for Joel and for Cody 
And Keith, if you were here to do the same thing, we'd all be sitting here. I'd maybe pick up my phone, find a way to contact Pastor Matt and say, hey, you might as well stay in the UK. And we'd all sit here and look at an empty pulpit until Christ came back. No, an elder must not be completely perfect. I think, actually I think, and I, I think if Paul were here today, he would agree that any man who says he is perfect should be immediately disqualified as an elder. As First John says, For if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now that being said, blameless does mean something. What it does mean is that the elder is someone who, by and large, is known as a godly man, who embodies the character of the Savior he serves. And when, not if, but when, he sins, he does not pretend that he is perfect, but he confesses his sin and runs to the perfect Savior and cries, as King David did, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Because he knows and he believes that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blameless elder has been transformed by the grace of God and continues to be transformed. He walks blamelessly, and when he doesn't, he washes himself in the blood of Christ, who makes the sinner blameless again. To consider more what this blamelessness looks like, um, let's continue in the text. <clears throat> Where the Apostle Paul paints a picture of blamelessness, not just in the home, but in personal holiness as well. Verse 7 again, Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And I'll stop there. First is given a list of negatives, what the elder must not be, which is then followed by what the elder must be. If our text this morning were just verses 8 and 9, we could go and I would explain each one of these, but we are studying a larger passage, and so... Instead of doing that, I will simply say this. I will simply note that Christ was not overbearing. He wasn't arrogant and self-willed, but he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Christ was not quick-tempered. After all he had done, he rose from the dead, he showed all these signs and miracles, and then Thomas, his own disciple, didn't believe it. Didn't believe that he had risen from the dead. He insisted, unless I touch your wounds. Jesus was not quick-tempered. He didn't lash out at him for his stubborn unbelief, but he patiently consented, and he indulged Thomas for the sake of his own faith, for Thomas's faith. Christ was not a drunk nor violent. When he was arrested, he insisted that Peter put his sword away and healed one of the men who was there to arrest him. And Christ certainly did not act out of dishonest, selfish gain, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Mark 10. None of us elders here at Lance Free, no elders in any church anywhere, meet these qualifications perfectly. But our Savior Jesus does. 
He is hospitable, loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. What Paul is saying in his instructions to Titus is this. When appointing elders, see that they resemble Christ. See that those who care for the bride imitate the groom, who cares perfectly for his bride. See that they are fit for the task. And that task, that responsibility that these elders are given is stated in verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. <clears throat> the responsibility of the elder is threefold. There's, there's three components listed here. First, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. I love that that's the first one. The trustworthy message that the elder must hold firmly to is the message that says has been taught. That is the message which Paul proclaimed everywhere he went, at every church he established, including the church of Crete, the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians, Paul says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's First Corinthians 2. And later, he says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the message. This is a trustworthy message that has been taught. And this is what the elder must hold to firmly, the gospel. There are many temptations and tactics that Satan will use to loosen the grip of the Christian on the solid rock of Christ. Like Peter walking on the water, he will try to divert our attention to the waves around us, taking our eyes off of Jesus, and thus losing our grips and gradually sinking into the sea of unbelief. Or like the seed that fell in the rocky soil or among the thorns, troubles or cares of this world choke out the plant and cause it to wither away. So it is that the elder's first responsibility, first one, before he does any leading, before he does any teaching, counseling, shepherd, first thing is to hold fast to the gospel, to cling to Jesus Christ. It's his first responsibility and primary one. Only when he takes up this vital first responsibility should he even dare to embark on any of the other two. To hold firm to the trustworthy message of the gospel is paramount and necessary. He says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So that an elder is not able to do either of those other two roles well if he does not first hold firmly to the gospel. <clears throat> Secondly, it says, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. The elder ought to be an encouragement to the congregation. Though he's not to encourage them by his charming charisma or empty compliments puffing them up, it's not that sort of encouragement. He's to encourage them by sound doctrine, it says, by good, healthy teaching and holy living. In his firm grip on the gospel and his resemblance to Christ in his life, the elder ought to encourage and spur on the church to do the same. The apostle Peter admonished elders to shepherd the flock, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. It's in First uh, Peter 5. As an elder lives, leads, and teaches, the church ought to be invigorated to love Christ. Sadly, this is not always the case. Elders, pastors, or other Christian leaders have not 
always been blameless, but some, in fact, have been grossly blameworthy. Through affairs, elders have not been the husband of one wife. Through shady handling of finances, some have pursued dishonest gain. Some have not only fared, failed to care for their own children, but have abused children in their congregation. And when elders fail to pursue blamelessness, many Christians are discouraged. Perhaps some of you have personally felt the discouragement of an elder or other church leader um, who miserably failed to live up to the calling. The danger is that the congregation loses faith not only in the shepherds of their church, but in the shepherd of their souls. For this reason, Paul insists that the, blame, that the elders be blameless. The stakes are too high. The bride is too precious to have lax qualifications for elders of the church. Third responsibility, and on that note, an elder holding firm to the gospel is charged to refute those who oppose it. The shepherd not only nurtures the sheep, but protects the flock. Christ, as the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4 identifies him as that, the chief shepherd, Christ, not only makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us beside quiet waters, guides us in paths of righteousness, but he also comforts us with his rod and staff protects us so that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. There are two tactics that the enemy uses to try to make advances against the people of God. First is to raise up persecutors from the outside of the church. Second is to raise up false teachers from the inside. While elsewhere in the New Testament, we read encouragements for Christians to stand firm in the face of persecution as the government or the Jewish leaders try to persecute them out of existence. In Titus, the primary concern is with internal heresies. For this reason, Paul highlights the responsibility of the elder to refute anyone who opposes the trustworthy message as it has been taught, the sound doctrine, the truth that leads to godliness. And for this task as well, remember that it is vital for the elder to himself hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. He must be well-versed in the gospel to recognize its counterfeits. He must love the gospel so that he is not allured by its distortions. Paul now turns his attention to those who do oppose that sound doctrine, to those who are false. In verses 5 through 9, Paul has positively instructed, these are the people to appoint as elders in the church in Crete. And now, having just mentioned that one responsibility is to oppose false teachers, to oppose those, to refute those who oppose the gospel, he now turns to those sorts of people. Just as he began verse, in verse 6 by identifying the characteristics of good elders, he begins here by identifying characteristics of those who most certainly um, to most certainly avoid giving authority to in church. These are types of people definitely not appoint as elders. He says, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. There are a few things to note about these people. First, he says that they are many. This is not just a particular individual who is causing problems or even a noisy few. The problem is apparently widespread. As a widespread disease in the physical body requires specialized treatment, so a widespread disease in the body of Christ requires special attention in the Apostle Paul's letter. 
So they are many. Secondly, he describes them as rebellious people. They are not simply mistaken or confused. They are not well-intentioned but misguided. This happens sometimes, but this is not the case here. Paul is clear. Their motives are wicked. They are rebellious, insubordinate, hungry for power and influence, set on taking the church down with them into the snares of their false gospel. Thirdly, Paul says that these false teachers are mere talkers and deceivers. They are full of words, their tongues are constantly flapping, but nothing of value comes out. They talk and talk, but there's no truth. God says of himself in his own words, he says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing which I sent it, in Isaiah 55. But the very opposite is true of these false prophets and teachers. When they speak, it's empty. It gives no life. It proclaims no redemption. It does not produce true hope. It does not bring forth righteousness. That is not to say it does nothing at all. It does deceive. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. It brings death. It pronounces condemnation. It produces false hope, and it brings forth wickedness. Fourthly, a particular characteristics of these false teachers is named. It says, especially those of their circ- circumcision group. Now, Titus, when reading this letter, would have probably known exactly who this referred to. Um, while it might not be as clear to us, we do know a few things about this circumcision group. We know from their name that they tried to mingle the Jewish law with the gospel. Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. But to some, apparently, this meant go, therefore, and make Jewish Christians of all the nations. They seem to insist that Gentile converts to Christianity first adhere to the national and cultural laws of Israel, most prominently circumcision, in order to be reconciled to God. You had to be Jewish first, and then you can come to God. And we know that this group had power. This, like I said, this wasn't just kind of like an annoying thing going on in the background. They had power, they had influence, and apparently they even swayed the Apostle Peter at one point in a moment of fear and weakness. In Galatians 2, Paul says, For certain men came from James. When they came, when they came Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision group. This was a thorny issue that the early church had to wrestle with. What identifies the people of God in the New Covenant? The Old Testament people of God were identified by certain outward symbols and practices, but what about now? But again, as tricky as this issue was to sort through, this group mentioned here in Titus, the circumcision group, they're not simply misguided. It wasn't like they were, they were, give, they were sincere and they just kind of came up on the, the, wrong, the wrong thought of, of a theological issue. They, by their teach, teachings, were distorting the very gospel itself. They are opposing the sound doctrine, the trustworthy message, the truth that leads to godliness. After Paul describes these insurgents of the church, he instructs Titus how to respond to them and why. He gives two instructions. First, in verse 11, they must be silenced. And then the reason they must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. They must be silenced. We can't let them have voice in the church. We need to make sure that their message is not spreading, spreading like gangrene. And why is that? It's because they're ruining whole households. It's for the sake of others in the church. 
he insists, Titus, they must be silenced. Do not appoint them as elders, certainly. They need to be silenced. Their message can't get out. It is destroying people's faith. So by teaching what they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The second instruction for how Titus is to deal with these um, truth opposers, um, I'm going to read verses 12 and following. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. Second is to rebuke them sharply. They must be silenced and rebuke them sharply. <clears throat> now, the reason for that, we can see actually before and after. He says, rebuke them sharply. It says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Pointing to what comes before and before, it says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, I don't believe that, the, that Paul is in reality singling out all Cretans, that he has something against people from Crete, um, as the worst of the worst of all people. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. Otherwise, he wouldn't have instructed Titus to appoint presumably Cretan elders um, to the church in every town. What I think he is doing here is identifying these false teachers with the world around them. They oppose the gospel. They are not believers. They are not just wayward, misguided saints in need of kind of being brought back into the fold. They are of the world, and the world that they are part of as even one of their own poets has said, is full of wickedness. This testimony is true. The condemning description of the pagan Cretan culture also describes to a T these false teachers. A mistaken saint is corrected by gentle correction and discipline. A rebellious, infiltrating enemy of the church of Jesus Christ is corrected by a sharp rebuke. The reason for a sharp rebuke also follows the command. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. This is for their own sake. If they must be silenced for the sake of others, they must be sharply rebuked for their own sake so that they will be sound in the faith. A sharp rebuke is the only thing that will bring them into grace. These truth opposers are deceivers, they are predatory, they are stubborn, and what is needed to snap them out of their infatuation with the counterfeit gospel is a clear, firm, piercing rebuke. Like the scribes and Pharisees, these false teachers are billowing with pride, and as writer C.S. Lewis once observed, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The gentle correction is done out of love for the other, when you gently correct someone who is in error. And of a genuine desire to see them experience the grace of Christ and spiritually flourish as they walk with him. The motive must be no different even if a sharp rebuke is needed. Yes, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, but former Cretans are not. Grace-soaked Cretans are not. Cretans who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ are not like that. Paul doesn't want to see a world of lying Cretans, brutish Cretans, lazy, gluttonous Cretans. Paul wants to see Cretans who are sound in the faith. He wants to see Cretans who reject silly myths and accept the truth. And if a sharp, piercing, indicting, woe-filled warning of rebuke is what's needed for that, with the love of Christ pouring out of his heart, he will instruct Titus, by all means, rebuke them sharply. 
It's not about his ego. It's not about winning a debate or a philosophical argument. It's about the lost sinners being reconciled to a loving God. Many times, if not most times, this is done like a lamb, gently calling people to Christ. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. But sometimes, a sharp, a sharp rebuke is in order. Jesus did not call the false teachers of this day, of his day, softly and tenderly. Finally, Paul ends this discussion of the false teachers who, who oppose the trustworthy message by diagnosing the cause of their rebellious, deceptive natures. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Nothing is pure to them. That is, they insist on so many ascetic rules about what you couldn't eat, what you couldn't touch, how you had to purify yourself, all that. <clears throat> First Timothy speaks um, of deceitful spirit, of a deceitful spirit and teachings of demons through the insincerity, insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In Colossians 2, says, if Christ, with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that per all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This truth can be seen in, in the Cretan opposition. They had all their rules and regulations. Nothing is pure to them. And yet, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Why? Why are they like that? The, the answer is actually sandwiched in there. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. This series in, in Titus I've titled from verse 1, chapter 1, The Truth That Leads to Godliness. And these false teachers do not believe that truth. And so it does not lead to godliness for them. They claim to know the truth. They claim to know God, it says. But they do not, for there is no godliness that comes from their confession. But they deny him by their works. Belief in sound doctrine and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ leads to godliness. And we must remember it is not the other way around. And this is why in identifying both elders to appoint and false teachers to oppose, Paul instructs Timothy on both the godliness or lack thereof to look for and the belief in the truth which produces such godliness. He says, look at their actions and look what they hold firm to. That will tell you what the type of person you're dealing with. The elders are to be men who hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And since this trustworthy message leads to godliness, you can confirm this by seeing their blameless lives. On the other hand, Titus is to oppose those who oppose the trustworthy message. And since a failure to adhere to the trustworthy message leads to ungodliness, you can confirm them by seeing their rebellious, deceptive, impure lives. So what then are we to take from this passage? First, I want to ask, what are we to take, talk about what we are to take theologically from this passage? That is, what are we supposed to learn about the triune God from this passage? 
And then lastly, we'll end with what are we to take from this passage and apply to our lives? There's two uh, theological doctrines that I would like to pull out from the text. The first is Christ cares. Who cares for his church? Sadly, it's all too common that the elders or leaders of any given church are not chosen based on the qualifications laid out in God's word. Instead, they're chosen by qualifications that arise from the human mind and heart, and those lead the way. Charisma trumps hospitality. Getting things done prevails despite a rocky marriage. Money speaks, and so a quick temper, temper is overlooked. Influence is prized without regard for why someone might seek that influence. Elegant speech is fawned over to the neglect of a loose, undisciplined lifestyle. While Saul was chosen by the people, God chose David. While the people chose the tall, handsome, charismatic leader, the obvious choice in their eyes, God chose the small, forgotten shepherd boy, the man after his own heart. God wanted the one who would hold firmly to him to be the one to lead his people. And how did the Son of Man come into the world? How did Jesus come into the world? Isaiah 53 prophesied he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He didn't have everything that we would typically look for in a leader, and that's, that's what made it. No, he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, in fact. A man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. But he was a perfect savior for us, not by those things, but by his perfect holding firmly to his faith in his Father his perfect obedience. Do we presume then that we appoint leaders of Christ's church by our standards when we, rather than his? When we do that, aren't we really saying that we care for his church more than he does? Which of us shed his blood for the church? Which of us suffered betrayal for the sake of the church? Which of us endures offense after offense, insult after insult, patiently enduring for the sake that the church would grow in holiness. Ask again, who died for the church? Who cares most for the church? It's Jesus. Jesus cares. Christ cares deeply for his bride, and so he cares deeply who cares for his bride. It is why in the prophets, the strongest language in the Old Testament is often reserved for the kings, the priests, and the false prophets of Israel. This group of people, interestingly, God often refers to as the shepherds of his people. He also uses in the New Testament for the elders. It is why Jesus pronounced the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And why it is that Paul here uses such intense, intense language and calls for Titus to rebuke them sharply. Christ cares for his people. The second theological doctrine doctrine to observe in this text is Christ cares who his people listen to. In Ezekiel 34, after prophesying against the woeful shepherds of Israel, God says through the prophet, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And Jesus said, I am 
the good shepherd. John 10. And shortly after he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Christ cares about those who shepherd his people, and he cares that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. He does not want his sheep to be misled. He does not want whole households disrupted, ruined because of bad shepherds teaching things they ought not to teach. What is wonderful about those words in John 10 is that they are a promise. He doesn't say, if my sheep hear my voice, then I will know them. If my sheep follow me, then I will know them and I will be their shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's a matter of fact. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And these words, interestingly, he actually spoke to the bad shepherds of Israel, to the Jewish religious leaders when he spoke those words. And one of the means that God uses to keep his sheep is by using faithful, Christ-clinging other sheep called elders. Shepherds who are themselves under shepherds and sheep of the chief shepherd who is Christ to model Christ to the sheep. That as they teach and live out the sound doctrine of the gospel, they're pointing, they are pointing the other sheep to Christ, and that is edifying to the church. He uses faithful elders to remind the sheep of his voice as they preach, teach, and model the word of God. That's why he encourages his people to listen to and imitate their faithful leaders in Hebrews 13.7. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And it's, as I'm preparing this message, it's weird as an elder, in some ways, preaching on this passage. But I want to be clear about this. It's not ultimately about imitating elders or imitating anyone else in the congregation or to imitate each other. Um, in fact, I have been greatly imitated, greatly aided by imitating many of you. In terms of those qualifications for elder, one that I, I feel a lot of times woefully inadequate in is hospitality. But I've learned by imitating some of you in this church. I think in particular of the first time that Jordan and I walked into this church. Um, walked in, I didn't know anyone really. I was new to the area. Um, but John Lee Evans came up to us. She greeted us, asked our names, and she remembered our names. I want to imitate that. I could go on many others of you, that's just the first that came to mind. Because you guys faithfully cling to Christ, I hope to imitate that. But it does say, talk about specifically about imitating elders and leaders of the church, but it's not about imitating the elders. It's not about it, ultimately about imitating other people. It's ultimately about imitating Christ and doing that for one another. We as elders... Um, our hope is not to have a church full of people who are like Abe Skasel, or Cody Crumrine, or Joel Michaels, or Keith Fulmer, or Matt Mitchell. We hope to have a diverse church full of unique people, yet who are all like Christ. That is why the following verse, we read in Hebrews 13.7 about imitating the leaders. Hebrews 13.8 does say, 
that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Elders come and go. They change. They pass on to the other life. In fact, there are others sitting here who have at one time or another served as elders in this church faithfully, and we thank you. This church is healthy and thriving because of your service. Church elders change over time. Church members change over time. But Jesus Christ does not change. So God uses men and women to model Christ to one another, to edify the church in the sound doctrine of the gospel. And one particular role he uses is men called elders. Christ cares for his church, and Christ cares who his people listen to. Two brief points of application. And I first want to address my fellow elders. Hold firmly to Christ and to his gospel. We aren't perfect at fulfilling these requirements, but we desire to. But the key to growing more and more into an elder who fits the description is by growing more and more into the image of Christ. And how do we do this? By holding to him and by beholding him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We must hold firmly to the trustworthy messages taught. I know, elders, that these passages can be intimidating. We can feel like we aren't up to the weighty task. That's why I urge you to hold firmly to the one who is up to the task. Now to my fellow church members, I also say hold firmly to Christ and to his gospel. You might be reading this passage and be like, I'm not an elder. What's, what's the point of this for me? I've heard it said that what's so extraordinary about the qualification for elders in the Bible is how ordinary they are. They are things that every Christian should pursue. Who sh- what Christian shouldn't seek to be faithful to their spouse or raise up godly children? Which Christian shouldn't embody those qualities of Christ? Blamelessness ought not to be a characteristic of just the elders of the church, but of the church as a whole. I cited Ephesians 5 earlier where Christ is making his bride, the church, all of us together, blameless. He is making us blameless. Therefore, hold firm to him. There are lots of false gospels out there. There are lots of Cretans who are teaching things they ought not to teach, even ones who claim to know God but deny him by their works. Today, they may not be insisting that we follow the Old Testament cultural laws or adhere to different purification rites, but they may be insisting that the way to be saved is to vote a certain way or to search uh, for your truth within yourself rather than to submit to his truth and his word. Or perhaps they insist that if you just name it and claim it, you can have anything from God that your heart desires, health, wealth, ease, comfort, and fame. My fellow brothers and sisters, do not clamor for the false teachers who are unfit for anything good. Clamor for more of Christ. Hold firmly to him and his trustworthy message. Insist on this. Insist on the truth that leads to godliness. The truth that there is a Savior who died for you to pay the penalty for your sins and raise you to a new life. Insist on that, hold on to him, and he 
will make you blameless.